Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this this week, and it was about the Atlanta massacres. You know, the email basically just asked me, did I believe that someone with sex addiction? could participate in something like that? Or was it an excuse? And the truth of the matter is that I don't know. I mean, I have worked with a lot of people who truly have destroyed their their laptops, their phones. They've brought them in for me. They have thrown them two and three stories out the window. I mean, when an addict is so disgusted with him or herself, they want to get rid of the offending item, right? And so they'll do anything to make that happen. It's almost like they lose their mind. However, you know, what I want to say is unequivocally, having compulsive or addictive sexual behavior should never be used as an excuse for violence, misogyny, racism, homophobia. It just should not. And so it very well could have been a very mentally ill person combined with his propensity for compulsive sexual problematic behavior that drove him to want to, as I said before, remove the offending item. And if he was addicted to massage parlors, it's possible, although very, very rare, that someone would take it out on 
the clinic, the massage parlor, the the masseuse, him or herself. You know, because the truth of the matter is that in general, it's very uncommon for people who suffer from sex addiction to exhibit any kind of violent behavior unless it's at themselves. I was talking to a couple um, earlier this morning, and he said, I'm surprised after the shooting he didn't turn the gun on himself. Now, again, that was not a man who felt like this man should have killed himself, but he said, you know, when you're that desperate and you want all the evidence out of your way, you usually end up killing yourself too. So our hearts go out to anybody who's been affected. Um, And we also want to say, as certified sexual addiction therapists, that when the media says the sex addiction is not real, when they are able to find people who say that, or naysayers, if you will, and there are some, there are plenty of them actually, we always tell them and our listening audience that the World Health Organization um, recognizes sexual compulsivity. They call it CSBD, Compulsive Sexual Behavior Disorder, but it's commonly known as sex addiction. And the World Health Organization, as you well know from COVID, uh, is the organization that makes the decisions about how you treat illnesses and when they are real and when they are not. So I want to say that, you know, we at ITAP committed to our mission to educate. That's why I do this podcast. We want to educate you on addiction and trauma and mental health illness so that you will understand it better and you have access to compassionate and effective treatment. That is so important that you know that you can go and find treatment for your condition and no one will judge you. They'll help you find the resources necessary to get healthy. And I've said it before, I did this show for about a year. The first week, it was 34 callers. The second week, it was 3,000. By the end of the first month, it was 30,000. And a year later, when I was checking demographics, I found out that it was 52% women, 48% men. And since I knew there was no way there were that many female sex addicts listening to the show, I quickly gleaned that women were listening to the show to better understand their husbands, fathers, brothers, uncles, and they wanted more information about this. And that's why we're committed at ITAP 
to really educating everyone about compulsive problematic sexual behavior. That's my favorite definition. Now, again, what do I know? I mean, the World Health Organization calls it compulsive sexual behavioral disorder. And so we want to express our deepest condolences to the families of those who lost loved ones in this horrific tragedy. And Stephanie Carnes says, we, lo- we walk alongside you during this time of grief because we know um, how damaging this condition can be. Okay, so that's my um, belief about what happened. And I've been doing temperature checks of everybody that I'm talking to. Truly, it is very, very common for people to not know where to turn when they're dealing with this kind of sadness, this kind of grief, and this kind of compulsivity. Basically, that's why we have our guest on today. Uh, you, you saw the title of the show, What Should a Couple Look For in Therapy with Carol the Coach? And I'm going to be interviewing with Tina Griffin, who is going to be talking about the benefits of working collaboratively um, as a partner-sensitive therapist with a CSAT, a certified sexual addictions therapist. And what are the benefits of doing collaborative work anyway? You know, whether it's disclosure, whether it's in conjunction with couples work, um, whether you're just providing good care and uh, you're both seeing your people individually. It is so nice to have practitioners in your office or in your area that understand the conditions involved and that can, with release, releases, you know, those are signed releases of information, they can talk about what's going on so that each person or the coupleship benefits from two professionals as opposed to one. So I'm happy to have Latina join us. Latina, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I was so pleased when I heard what you were going to be talking about because you and I both know that there's significant benefit to working with clients individually, but when we can get a whole team working with the family, working with the coupleship, um, it maximizes what we can do. And so I so appreciate that you are willing to take some time and talk about what your experience has been and why you choose to work the way that you do. So give me a little information, first and foremost, about you, where you are, and uh, what made you go into this business. Okay, great question. Um, So I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm a member of, uh, I'm a certified partner specialist with the APSATS organization, Um, and I am in just north of Austin, Texas, in Round Rock, for everybody who's made it down here. Um, 
when I, I it's really kind of funny. I was a trauma therapist, so I work with EMDR. Um, people familiar with that, and and some other trauma therapies. And um, one week, I was noticing that some of the women that I were, was working with, there was a consistent theme. And again, it was within the course of one week. Um, as I was diving into these trauma symptoms with these women, um, their husband's sexual behavior or sexual addiction behaviors came up. And uh, again, that wasn't why they were here. That wasn't something that we had been discussing even really. And they just kind of came out in terms of the other things that were causing them worry. And I had never even heard of this area of of work before Um, and didn't really know what to do with it. And Interestingly, that week, I actually got a phone call from um, Kevin Leakley, who I work with now. He was transferring to Austin from another city, and he's like, I am looking for a a trauma therapist in Round Rock who can work with the spouses of the um, men that I work with, because in his previous practice, that's how it had been done, and they found it most successful. And I'm like, wait, what is this betrayal trauma thing? Never really had heard of it honestly, which is interesting because there's so much work out there um, that you've done in Barbara Steffens and so many other um, amazing um, researchers. But um, as I dove into it, I, I started really realizing that so much of the trauma that I was seeing in women, the women that I'd seen that week, but even historically, was the result of their their response to um, really a, a post-traumatic stress reaction to betrayal. And it was funny because all the pieces sort of just came together and they made so much sense. And so being able to start treating that way has made my work so much more effective, but also in conjunction with um, Kevin, again, so when his his partner or when his um, clients are saying, you know, I'm I'm trying to recover, but my wife is still struggling, um, he has somewhere to send them, in other words, so we can heal them as individuals, but as a coupleship. Well, absolutely. And so it sounds like your primary work may be with betrayal trauma and and women who are recovering from that. Is that correct? Correct, yes. And together with your cohort, you're able to provide more comprehensive services, uh, especially in coupleships. Mm -hmm. Correct. I agree. So I'm wondering, um, how do you think that you and the CSAT have benefited each other in your work for your clients? It sounds maybe even a little bit funny, but um, when I get into the stories and the work with my clients, sometimes um, it's, I I, I won't say I lose perspective, but, you know, we're, we're really in the work with them, and we're, we're, we're seeing this from just kind of that ground level. And Kevin is, too, as he's talking with, these, with his clients. And sometimes we miss the bigger picture of what's happening in the relationship, if that makes sense. So when we call each, you know, we, and we, it's not like we're calling each other every day and, and sharing secrets that are happening in therapy, but um, when I call and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not understanding this. And he's like, oh, it's because, and he'll give me, you know, a little bit more information or you need to understand where this person, where he's coming from. And I'm able to stand back and go, got it. And I'll do the same for him. It's like, well, yes, but it's because we have, you know, 
what you what you need to understand about where she's coming from is again fill in the blanks. It's whatever whatever it is that she's struggling with. So he's able to take that back to his client and say, okay, so we need to understand that when you you know if when you come in 30 minutes late, her brain automatically goes to you know this thing that happened. Maybe not even related, but she's reliving this moment that happened 12 years ago in your marriage. So we need to be as you need to be able to be sensitive to that, hold that better. And again, and he does the same for me. So we're, we just are able to see together. We're able to see a much bigger picture in terms of what's happening with this couple in their relationship. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. Can you share with me a specific example? I mean, we all know that. Um, Betrayal trauma can look like a woman who is out of control, that can't regulate her emotions, and she can get pegged as borderline when really she's in trauma. She's having a severe stress response. Is that one of the things you might explain to him, as well as I'm wondering what he might explain to you? Absolutely. Um, and so often, again, um, I'm trying to think of an example um, that that doesn't come too close <laughs> to what anyone has actually experienced. But um, no, you're absolutely right. So, for example, um, if he stays, uh, well, an easy one that happens a lot. So a husband, you know, picks up his cell phone and walks into the bathroom, and he comes out and she's slamming dishes in the sink. He's like, I don't have you were fine a second ago, and now you're out and like, yes, but if you'll recall, one of the things that has happened in the past is you'd bring your phone into the restroom and you'd act out there. And when she's discovered it, so now every time that cell phone goes anywhere near a closed door, she's re-experiencing that trauma. And so you come out, you have no idea what happened. Really, you were just checking ESPN to find out who won that March Madness game last night. But she's spiraling into, I call it the tornado. The tornado comes back up and all of a sudden things are just, her head is swirling. She can't complete sentences. She's angry at you. She's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And so when we're able to stand back and say, okay, this is what her trigger is and I can help communicate that to, to the CSAT I work with, he's able to phrase that in a way so that this, this, his client can understand, okay, so when I go into the restroom now, I'm going to leave that phone face down on the countertop so that that trigger doesn't happen for her. But also on, for him, he's not left wondering, what did I do? I didn't do anything. <laughs> and so, again, she's having a trauma reaction, but it looks very much like a crazy person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And really – what I see a real benefit of is that you're both educating each other about your very own expertise and how wonderful mm-hmm. that you're getting the benefit of his knowledge and exactly. he's getting the benefit of yours. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the great things that we do with each other also is, um, you know, one of us will read a, a book and I'm not and like, for example, um, he had me read one recently um, about going deeper and, and really how um, people with sexual addictions connect with that inner child. And it was, it was just, it was absolutely eye-opening. So now I'm not only armed with this information that he shared with me, but I am also able to pass that on to my clients as well. 
and help them understand. And then on the flip side, again, I'll pass something on to him and say, you know, you really probably should look at this or a podcast or something so that we're both, um, because, you know, we're both specialists in our field. And so he allow, it allows us to share information so that even if he's not present in the room with me, I have, I have this arsenal of information that he's given me. Okay, you've, you've piqued my curiosity. Do you remember what book he recommended? Yes, I'm actually, let me pull it out. Um, so it is called Going Deeper. Um, it's by Eddie Cappuccini, and it's how the inner child impacts your sexual addiction. The road to recovery goes through your childhood. I was hoping that's what you were referencing. Excellent. We've had Eddie show a couple of times. So he's done podcasts, and that is an excellent book. He's written a couple of them, and, and he really understands how childhood issues can, if you will, contribute to the need to medicate um, the wound, the trauma, the wounding. So now you refer it right. to your clients so that they understand if they're describing someone who had a horrific childhood what mm-hmm. he's going through. Exactly. Yeah, and it, one of the things, it helps both, It help, again, on both sides, it helps build empathy. We're not, we never excuse behaviors on it, right? Not even, you know, she's throwing things at him. I'm like, that's not okay. And we're not excusing what happened in his, what he's done maybe. But at the same time, we can hold empathy for how we got there. And mm-hmm. again, I, and I don't know if we're allowed to plug this book or not, but I, I even tell people just read it, take out the sexual addiction piece and plug your own stuff in there and you'll find yourself. Yes, I too think that's amazing. And um, anytime we can be more compassionate for the other person, it allows us to work through some of our own grief or anger or sadness because we get that there's sadness, grief, and anger on the other side from childhood, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, one of the great things about having a, a I don't know if I call Kevin my partner in crime sometimes, but just having that, that CSAT that we go to is, um, this is going to sound a little silly, but I also know him and he knows me and he knows how I practice and I know how he practices. And it helps. Sometimes we all know that when we're, it, it's just a fact of life that when we're in a room having a conversation with someone, we don't always hear we hear what, we, what we're understanding at the moment, and there are times where, again, because of our own histories and things, we're able to just, um, you know, on more than one occasion, one of my clients has told her husband that, um, and I'm, I'm using he and she sometimes it's actually, it's, it's not, the gender roles are not always static, um, but, you know, my therapist said X, Y, and Z, and then Kevin will call me and say, that didn't sound like something you would say. I'm like, no, it, that's not what I said. Actually, what I said was, or what I meant was. And so, again, it allows us to clarify. Um, and then, so, and of course, this is not, we're having open dialogue with our clients. About, like, I think you may have misunderstood me. Let me go back and clarify what it was I was talking about. No, I did not say he can never golf again. What I meant was, <laughs> if that's a trigger for you, let's, let, we, can, we can have that conversation with him. Or on the flip side, again, he'll say, He'll, he'll share things with me that, um, or 
like, again, either way, we were able to have great conversations with each other about what was, what was heard and what was understood versus what was meant in our therapeutic relationships to make sure that we're also just, again, collaborating um, with the couple and in both of their recoveries. Yeah, and and so now I've got a I've got a question for you. What book would you recommend for him to read that might have to do with partner trauma or partner sensitivity? Oh, there's a lot of good ones. Um, so I'm, I'm pausing here to go because I don't want to overload. <laughs> um, one of the great books, and this is actually written for for women. Um, or not necessarily for women, for, for, for the partner that's been betrayed, but um, Treating Trauma Through Sexual Betrayal, Sexual Betrayal by Kevin Skinner. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with him? I okay. sure am. So he that is a, cap, that, a CSAT. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. He is a CSAT. He, he wrote a great book as a CSAT um, for women in their recovery, but I also recommend that to people who are working through their own sexual addiction to really understand not only what their wives are going through, but also what her healing process is going to need to look like so he can support her in that. Okay, that's a great choice, uh, recommendation. And, of course, you and I both love the book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse by Barbara Steffens and Marshall. Yeah. That is sitting next to it on the bookshelf, actually. That's a great one. There and honestly, that. there are no there. There are so many really great books out there, um, and even well, let me plug yours. For, <laughs> um, I, even your workbook. Um, well, there and I, I think um, I mentioned this, um, and I'm not sure if you know this, but um, I run a women's group that uses Unleashing Your Power, your newest workbook, um, and even from so it's it's fantastic for women who, or again, it's written specifically to women, but it would work for any partner who's been, who's dealing with the betrayal trauma. Um, But on the flip side, again, those kind of things become really, really helpful in terms of the empathy that we talked about for understanding um, what that healing process is going to need to look like for her, that we are going to need to give her space to grow. We're going to need her to really rediscover herself and not be so so that she's not so attuned and hypervigilant around what, what what's going on with me. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things I so admire about you is that you are such a good partner-sensitive therapist. And, and I know that sometimes people think, oh, yeah, if you're APSATs, then you don't understand how sex addicts feel. And, and then people in the CSAT world, you know, they're afraid that they're seen as a proponent of only working with the addict. And you and I both know that the ITAP has opened up a partner-sensitive program to train their CSATs and anybody else on what partner trauma is all about. So we're thrilled that they're willing to do that, although you and I represent assets and we do believe we've got the best program in the world, don't we? <laughs> we do. But I will say I am actually starting my CSAT training, not because I necessarily – through ITAP, not because I necessarily want to be a, 
a, a sexual addiction therapist, but because I want to be able to support my my betrayed partners better, again, through that empathy. And I, I'm a huge believer that um, anyone who's working in this area, you you really can't work with a partner, and really I would say on either side, without being sensitive to what the part, what the what the other partner in the marriage is going through. And the more information that we can provide to to them about what their partner, what their spouse, and what their partner is going through, the more successful their recovery is going to be. And really, when it comes to success, so much of this hinges on empathy. And yes. we want them to have empathy for each other and what they're going through. And, you know, when I'm talking with partners, I'm saying I'm not making an excuse for his behavior, but I do want you to understand the compulsivity. For instance, yes. what happened last week in yes. Atlanta? Do you have a, a specific thought or feeling about um, the shooter? <laughs> That's a tricky one. Um, you know, it's – I don't know a lot about – I don't know his story at all. Um, I did, again, as soon as I saw it, interestingly, I was about – I don't know if, if your audience is familiar with disclosures. Um, I was really about – literally about to go into a disclosure with uh, a, the, the sexual addict um, was massage parlors were one of his struggles. And so that was a little bit of even a trigger for me. My my wondering, again, I don't know what brought him to where he was or his thinking, but again, just coming from that understanding of how hard um, sexual addiction really is and how deeply it penetrates a soul, it's, those people. I really, I, I, what they do is not, that was not okay. Again, not making any kind of, it was not okay. That said, I really do wonder, and again, I don't want to speak it but without knowing all the facts. I, I want to be careful, but I, it is just that, that firm sense of this is something that absolutely, I'm sure, goes way, way back in his history. Not okay what he did at all. But I always wonder with any, any kind of atrocity like that, it's like if we could have gotten to that person sooner and helped them in a significant way could we have prevented what happened 100% I know that I don't know enough about the details either and so I'm going to have to wait and and do some investigation but I was telling our listening audience before you join join the podcast that I work with a lot of addicts that that get so frustrated that they get rageful and they mm-hmm. use a jackhammer to destroy their computer and they uh, throw their phone or their computer out a third story window and I mean they just do very irrational things when they are in that darkness and they don't feel like they can get out so I appreciate your thoughts on that I think we really need to keep the dialogue going Um, that being said you mentioned disclosure and will you let our listening yeah. audience know uh, how working with a CSAT might benefit the process of disclosure? Tell them what a disclosure is and then what are the benefits? Okay. 
So a disclosure, and um, we usually refer to it as a full disclosure, and other people refer to it as a right of truth, um, is when the person who has been struggling with sexual addiction details, and when we say detail, we mean detail, <laughs> um, as far back as they can go with, um, again, based on what the, the, the trade partner would like to know how, how far back, um, just really what their sexual history has been and including um, an account of all of their, um, basically everything that, that's occurred outside of their marriage or outside of their relationship. Um, not just, again, and in, in the work that I do, and everyone does this a little bit differently, um, we go back as far as, that they, as they can remember. And I've never seen an instance where it didn't go back into childhood. Um, and they just basically sit down and they write it out. They work with their therapist to make sure that it's all there and it's all accurate and it's in an in a order that can be understood. Um, I work with the partner and ask her, you know, what is it you want to know, how much detail you want to know, and cautiously consider how much detail is appropriate or what will help her or harm her. So then we go back to the CSAT and say, um, she wants this but not this. She doesn't want to know what cities it happened in. She just wants to know that it did happen. Um, she doesn't want to know dates, but or or she does want to really want to know if there were any dates connected to. Um, you know, is that why you left Johnny's birthday party early? So um, it's again just a, a very detailed uh, history. Essentially, um, we it's a very clinical process. Um, I prep her going in. We work on emotional regulation and grounding and, you know, what might you hear so that she is prepared to hear a complete history and he works with his, with his therapist as well to make sure that he's able to emotionally get through it. Um, we walk into a room, sit down, and then he just reads it. And um, she has any clarification questions, she'll ask. And then when it's done, um, it's basically the idea is that there are no more secrets. There are no more surprises. There's nothing else waiting around the corner. And the idea is that the couple can now, with it all out on the table, she's able to work on her forgiveness, not my favorite word. I'm really cautious with it in therapy, but work on forgiveness mm -hmm. and healing with a full understanding of everything that is that she is healing from and forgiving. And he can feel secure in knowing that he's given her the gift of all of the same information that he has. So as a couple, they are once again on equal footing. Yeah, and I like so the way that you a, said that. It is a gift, isn't it? I mean, to be willing and vulnerable enough to share your entire sexual history slash timeline slash addiction so that she can put the puzzle pieces together and make as much sense of it as possible. I mean, that is truly what a partner needs in that first phase of safety and stabilization is to figure out what just happened to me and why. And that why oftentimes is dependent on who am I married to and why did you do this to me? Exactly. And it, it's tricky because a lot of, I always say that, like you said earlier, there's no excuses. There's not excuses, but there's reasons. And so 
often in that disclosure is where she's going to find the reasons for the first time. Again, doesn't it doesn't make it okay. But what it does do is, Mabel, we talked a lot about the empathy piece. It lets me sit back and go, okay, now I'm at least putting these pieces together, um, understanding what's gone on with you, but also, and really important, you know, she's had this sense of this nagging intuition for a long time usually. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And so it, it kind of puts her in this place of I feel crazy. And it allows her, it, it, part of the gift that he's giving her is reaffirming her sense of understanding herself, being able to trust herself again. I felt like that was off because it was off. I didn't really want you to go to that conference, and now I know why. I know why my gut was telling me that was a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Right. It not only validates them, but, again, it puts those intuitive pieces together that she didn't have evidence to believe something mm-hmm. was wrong, but her saying there is something wrong. And a woman's gut is very, very strong. I think that's one of the toughest things about partner betrayal is it obviously can make a woman mistrust herself because one of those lies is why didn't I know? Why didn't I see? Why why did I believe him? So now I want to get back to you and your work with the CSAT. And so in a disclosure, the CSAT represents him. And what advantages are there for a CSAT to be part of the disclosure? So one of the things I love um, is when the when when Ke- when the well, I say Kevin <laughs> I haven't just done that with Kevin but um, when the CSAT is part of the disclosure he is really he knows usually this man's story well at this point and he understands he have he holds a lot of empathy for what's happening he knows the work that he's doing so when they work together to there's so many drafts usually. Um, and I don't know if that's how you, I know you're CSAT as well, if you do that. But there's so much um, great work that goes into, um, you know, I don't, want, I don't think we should leave that out. I think we should, you know, this, this is part of your history. This is, what, this is what happened. And it really is like having an ally in the process of creating that disclosure. And um, so when we go into the room, typically all four of us go in for the disclosure. So he has somebody sitting next to him who's his ally. He's basically saying, okay, we, we, you got this. We can do this. And when, because um, it, it's, it's, it's not a fun process for anybody, um, but when, for example, that the man who's sharing this information starts to become activated or you start to see him becoming nervous, you have your, your ally, your partner there helping to kind of calm you down. And on the flip side, I'm also sitting there with my, the partner that I work with and, you know, watching her and watching that her breathing might be getting a little bit heavy and asking, you know, are you okay to keep going? Do you need a break? And really in that moment, especially because um, this is that and I have talked ahead of time, we have a process in place. So we're able to kind of look at each other and kind of help regulate the room. Like, you know, can you slow them down? And, you know, do we need to pause for a second? Or he'll look at me and say, is she okay to keep going? And so I, it basically allows each one of those people in that disclosure, um, both partners in the disclosure, to essentially have an ally, knowing that, you know, our, pre- our prefrontal lobe is probably going to go offline a little bit. That's our logic center. And so we have someone in the room who's 
able to be a little more regulated and really look out for you. And that is so nice to have that, um, have all your bases covered and know that each person is being represented, watched, and, and advocated for, if you will. So I, I am mm-hmm. so excited to have this for the disclosure. Now, I got to ask you some technical questions. I'm wondering, okay. do you ever have a client that gets kind of paranoid, either your client or her husband? about what are you talking about, uh, are you breaching confidentiality, are, are you planning mm-hmm. something behind my back? I mean, does that ever happen? Um, and, yeah, that, that absolutely, and it's a valid concern. I, I can absolutely agree, understand where that's coming from. Um, so as long as you're working with professionals, and I do only work, <laughs> the, the therapists I work with are wonderful, um, we always require, first of all, a disclosure or a release of uh, consent um, for release of information ahead of time. So we would never have a conversation about a client that they didn't already know we were going to have, if that makes sense. So both, both partners are aware that this is, this is going to happen. Um, when we talk, it, we're all, we always hold that client confidentiality, even though we have that release sacred. So when we're talking about anything that's going on, um, it is, it's always going to be in a high-level way. If, for example, if, if my client were to tell me I'm really thinking about leaving him, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this, I would never share that with the CSAT right? because it's not important. Um, what would be important is um, she's still having nightmares, and she doesn't know that she can talk to him about what's happening in the content of those nightmares. So if he would be, and she thinks it would be helpful if she could wake him up in the middle of the night and say, you know, help hold me so I can calm down. But I, I'm not, I'm not able to tell that, say that to him. So I'm able to call the CSAT and say, here's what's going on. What do you think would be the best way for us to handle this, or for them to handle this? And either you know, he can share it, or he can give me the green light to say, yes, go ahead. Um, so again, we always hold that their important information sacred. Um, there, and just really the only things that we would ever, that we ever really discuss are things that would be helpful for the coupleship to be aware of. Okay. And that's a good point. You know, we as clinicians always use release of of information forms when we're going to be talking to another professional. And of course, the client has to have some faith in us that we are going to be, we're going to be held true to our ethics and we're not going to do anything that would violate their own personal information. Now, I have a no secrets policy, and when you sign mm-hmm. up to work with me, I let both of them know that I won't hold a secret. And what that means is that I'm not going to tell on somebody if they've slipped or relapsed or if she's considering acting out herself, whatever the issue is. But I'm going to encourage them to talk with each other, with me present. You and I, 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 do you ever work for sex addicts at all? Um, I I don't. I refer them. I just refer them on to Kevin. (laughs) Okay. And so once you get this training, you may find that you do work with some, I mean, you do work with some sex addicts, and mm-hmm. 
And when Absolutely. you do, you really have to be clinically on guard to, to have strong boundaries so that everybody feels safe. Because you and I know safety for a partner is first and foremost. And really, I find the same to be true with a sex addict. You know, he doesn't trust himself. So it's easy not to trust Mm -hmm. us. Yeah. Yes. So, again, I really, I am so happy that Kevin got a hold of you and um, sought you out and your wisdom. Now, what advice would you have for someone who might be listening to this and wondering if they could find a, a collaborative partner, well, as a worthwhile option for them? You know, how do they find collaboration? What should they say and do? And I'm sure several of our listeners are thinking, that's what we need as a couple. So what's your recommendation? Sarah, and that is a great question. So there are resources, again, through AppSats, for example. If um, you, if a CSAT, for example, were looking for a collaborative partner, um, just going to the AppSets website, you're, you can enter in a zip code and find see who comes up. And then reaching out and basically asking that question, asking what Kevin asked me, I need somebody that would be able that we would be able to partner together. Um, on the flip side, if you are a partner specialist, and again, there's a program um, through AppSets and as well through ITAP, just looking for CSATs in your area. Uh, one of the great thing about things about telehealth is it really opens up a state. Um, I prefer in person, but that's not always an option. Um, but it gives you just looking for people that um, are that that you could partner with. And again, one of the great things is that once you start to know each other's work, you are really able to um, just work together, kind of in a synchronized way. It's like this is where we are in the process. This is where he is. This is um, you know, he's he's not quite there yet, so we're going to have to let her hold space for him to come to a place of understanding or vice versa. So um, just really, but, but finding someone that you can work with that's a good fit um, and that is well-trained and is sensitive to both sides. So, again, I would say um, AppSet's website is a great place to start or even just um, not trying to plug anybody, but, you know, sites like Psychology Today, you can search for people. Um, search for other therapists by specialty and uh, for clients looking for um, even just looking for therapists who specialize in betrayal trauma they'll often be able to put you your spouse for example in in contact with a certified sexual addiction therapist that they know even if they're not necessarily in that collaborative relationship absolutely and and if you are looking for a CSAT that's willing to work that you want to find out if they were willing to work with your husband, you can also go to www.sexhelp.com, which ultimately is the ITAP website, really to help you find a therapist near you. And so, again, put in your zip code or your city and see what CSATs are available for your husband. And when you get the description, because there's, you know, a paragraph of descriptions It'll tell you whether they've had partner trauma training or if they're used to working with the couple or with partners, too. Mm-hmm. So, Tina, thank you so and very much. Somebody wants to work with you uh, in Texas, how do they get a hold of you? 
So they can find us through Hope Counseling Texas, so the H-O-P-E, HopeCounselingTexas.com. And I should also add that we also have a, a couple therapists is an emotionally focused therapist that we kind of, we, we, once we feel like everybody's ready, we move them to couples therapy so that they can heal the relationship even more. Oh, very good. All right. Well, I thank you again. Is there anything else you feel compelled to add? No, I think that's it. Just honestly, I believe that education is power, not just in um, again, finding a, a good fit for a therapist, but also continuing to read um, really great um, research-based material on not just what you're going through personally, but also what your spouse is going through. Yeah, good point. All right, well, we will talk to you soon, and thanks for thanks for plugging my work and using my um, oh. using my book. <laughs> It's, well, it's, honestly, it's, I, I love the 12-step program as well, but, but when we, we shifted to your book and everyone's like, okay, this is like almost a sigh of relief. <laughs> so they loved it. Aww. All right. Well, you take care, and thanks for your wisdom today. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. So that's Latina Griffin, and she obviously believes in working collaboratively with CSAP. So do I. Um, and it's just always nice being able to work as part of a team. Sometimes it's difficult. I have to tell you, not everybody's on the same page. So interview people that you want to work with you. And listen, we'll be back next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. And there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. See you next week.